Well, good morning. I want to thank you all for um, letting me come and share with you this morning. I've been looking forward to it for a long time since uh, Matt first asked me. Um, I think you guys know by now you guys have a great pastor, and he loves the Word, and he loves you guys, and he is um, doing all he can to help point you guys to Christ. And that's actually what we're going to talk a lot about this morning. We're going to be in the book of Colossians, so if you turn with me to the book of Colossians, we're going to be in chapter 1. And because I believe that God's word was given to us by God, is inspired by God, that he has given us everything we need for life and for godliness in his word, I don't want to waste your time this morning or waste my time by giving you my thoughts or my opinions. I want to go into God's word and share with you what God has said and what he's recorded for us. And so that way we may be edified and encouraged in the faith And uh, that's what I seek to do as I read the scripture. And so I'm going to read verses 18 through 23 of Colossians 1. And then basically what I do is similar to what your pastor does. I go through and just explain um, what's going on there and how we can try to apply it to our life. So if you would, read with me. Colossians 1, starting in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, referring to Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are indeed grateful for your word to us, and we're grateful, Lord, that you didn't leave us guessing as to how we should be or or how we can be saved, Lord. You have given us a revelation, and you have shown us, Lord, and you have recorded that in your word, Lord. And so we take time this morning to to read and to study and and to seek to grow closer to you and closer in our faith, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that that would happen this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would use me to preach your word. I pray that your spirit would illuminate hearts, Lord, that in spite of my inabilities, Lord, that people would see and hear and understand the word of God and that you would soften hearts this morning, Lord. Please remove all the distractions that we have going on in our minds and our hearts, Lord. We all come from a hard week of work and school and the different avenues that we're coming from, Lord, and and we're just beat up by the world, but we come this morning to hear a word from you, Lord, and pray that you would encourage us. And pray that we would grow in our faith this morning. And I ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're looking in Colossians and Paul is writing to the Colossians. And if I had to give you a a main idea or a thesis of the passage we're looking at this morning, it would be this. That Christ is the preeminent ruler and savior of his people. This is the message Paul is trying to get across to these Colossians. Christ is the preeminent ruler and savior of his people. Now, 
maybe you're like me and you, you hear that word preeminent and you're like, oh, I, I know what that means, but, you know, I hear it in context and I think I understand it, but if you ask me to define it, please don't ask me because I, I don't know what I'd say. I'd just, uh, I don't know. So I had to look it up because the word is in the text. I didn't just make it up. It's in the text. So I looked up the word preeminent and here's what it says. Surpassing all others. Very distinguished in some way. Preeminent means superior to or notable above all others. Superiority and excellence, distinction above others in quality, rank, etc. So you get the idea. If something or someone is preeminent, it is superior far above all the rest. There is no other like it. And the message Paul is trying to deliver to the Colossians today in this passage is, Christ is the preeminent ruler and savior of his people. Now what's going on in the, in the life of the Colossians that Paul feels the need to remind them? After all, they are believers, so surely they, they've trusted in Christ, they know Christ, they've put their faith in Christ, they are saved. So why does Paul feel the need to remind them of this again? Why is Paul emphasizing this point once more? Well, Scripture gives us all we need to know. We don't know all of the context. We don't know all of the de details of what's going on. But Scripture gives us just enough to understand all that we need to know. And from the letter of Colossians, if you read it all the way through, it's only four chapters, so it's not that difficult to do. It, you'll see that Paul is he's battling against some ideas and some concepts that were starting to take shape in the Colossian church. There were some whether it be some people from the outside coming in and, and teaching these things, or maybe some people in the congregation were starting to believe some things, whatever it may be, there were some ideas going forth. And you see him, especially in chapter 2, deal with these ideas. He says, don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He says, no need to add rules and regulations above what has already been taught you. These people were coming in and perhaps they were saying, oh yeah, Christ is great and the gospel is great, but here, if you want to truly be spiritual, you also need to do this, 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 and this. And Paul's reminding them, no, you don't need to do this, 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 and this. You don't need to follow these empty deceits and these philosophies. Christ is the preeminent ruler and savior of his people and he is enough. The gospel message is enough. And this isn't uncommon for us today, is it? This is not an old problem. It's also a problem that we face today. Because the idea that we could just trust in Christ and that we could just believe the gospel, it's too simple for us. We say, oh, all I have to do is believe, and we know the wickedness in our hearts, and we're saying, oh, that's too easy. Let me also add this, 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 and this. So we start adding these rules and these regulations. We start becoming legalists in our minds, much like the Pharisees that Jesus battled so often. And Paul is reminding him, no, Christ is the preeminent ruler and savior of his people. He has accomplished it. Your job is to trust in him and to walk in that fullness. Now if we take this passage in its context verses 15 through 17 Paul is really emphasizing the person of Christ and how Christ is preeminent in all of creation he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God he's the firstborn of all creation by him all things were created so all things were created by Christ through Christ and also says through him and for him so Christ was 
Christ was there, all things were being created through him, and all things were also created for him. He is the purpose of it all. And then verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in all of creation, this magnificent creation that we have, it has all been created through Christ and for Christ, and he holds it all together by the word of his power. If Christ were ever to stop holding the universe together, it would crumble. So Christ is preeminent. He is above all others in all of creation. But then in verse 18, he's going to zoom in specifically on his church on the redeemed, on new creation, on believers. Look at what he says in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body, the church. We often refer to the church as the body of Christ. Well, who is the head of that body? It's not some man. It's not some person. It's not a pastor. It's not a pope. It is Christ himself. He is the head of his body. And this shows us his complete sovereignty and control over his body. Now we live in America and we're individualistic and the idea of control and authority, we don't like it. You know, we're anti-authoritarian, all that stuff. We don't want anybody to control us. So the idea that somebody's in control of this church, it almost strikes us the wrong way. But listen, when it comes to governments and, and human authorities maybe that I, you don't like that idea but let me assure you when it comes to Christ when it comes to a God who is good and loving we want him to be in control see if if anybody else is the head of this body if anybody else rules over this church sovereignly if some human even with good intentions they eventually will mess it up why because we're sinful and we don't know everything and we're lacking in our understanding. But God, Christ, who is all-knowing and all-loving for Him to be in control, it's a good thing, right? We can rest assured that that's a good thing. I desire to be a pastor. One of the greatest comforts for me is that Christ is the head of the body because I know that if I am to be the head of the body, whew, poor people that call me as a pastor, but I know that if Christ is the head, if he is in control, and I can just seek to line myself up with him, then there's hope. Then there's hope for a group of people to come together. We're all sinners. We all have different backgrounds. But if Christ is our head, we have hope. He has sovereign control of his body. But also it shows us that the body has complete dependence on him. We depend on Christ 100% for life and vitality, for growth. It all depends on Christ. Look over at chapter 2, verse 19. Paul is dealing with these people who are bringing in foreign ideas. And one thing he says about them in verse 19 is that they do not hold fast to the head. Who's he talking about? Christ. Your translation may capitalize the word head there because he's referring to Christ. They do not hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. How does the church have any hope of life? How does the church have any hope of future existence? How does the church have any hope to grow? It is by holding fast to the head, to Christ. That's our best chance. That's our only hope. There's all kinds of church growth strategies. 
There's all kinds of methods. There's all kinds of styles. There's all these things, but those are all secondary. The thing you need to remember above all others is to hold fast to the head. Hold fast to Christ. You want to see growth in this church. It may not be numeric, but you want to see people growing in their faith, growing in their walk with the Lord, then teach them and show them how they can hold fast to the head, how they can hold fast to Christ. Find younger believers, maybe not younger in age, but younger in maturity, and go through books with them, go through scripture with them, and show them how to hold fast to Christ. Teach them to love Christ. Jesus. Teach them to dive in His Word and learn more about Him. And by holding fast to the head, we have hope that we can be nourished. We have hope that we can grow in our walk. We have hope that the Lord will grow His church. I was trying to think of a good illustration for this point, but I don't need to. That's the illustration. What happens to body that loses its head it dies there's no nourishment coming through there you don't have the mind telling your hand to pick up the food and put it in your mouth you have no nourishment and the body doesn't survive and so we too church this church Ridgecrest if you guys want to make a difference in this community if you want to see lives transform what I would encourage you and tell you is hold fast to the head You have no other hope. Hold fast to Christ. Let's keep reading. Second part of verse 18. Referring to Christ, it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. He is the beginning. Christ says when He's walking on this earth, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we read earlier from um, 15 through 17, where in the beginning, Christ was there and all things were being created through Him. And we also know from other scriptures that in the end, all of us will stand before who? Christ and give an account. He is there in the beginning. He's there in the end. Christ has always existed. There was never a time when Christ did not exist. He's the, and He was there when time began. He, he'll be there when time ends. He is the beginning, but also says he is the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the firstborn from the dead? Does it mean he was the first to be resurrected? Okay, that's part of it, but it's much more than that. Meaning Christ, by being the firstborn from the dead, he inaugurated this resurrection age Meaning if Christ was never resurrected, the idea of resurrection wouldn't even be a category in our mind. We, we only know about resurrection and we only have hope that we too will one day be resurrected because we've seen Christ and we've seen how he was resurrected. That's our only hope for resurrection. We, we know death is coming for us unless the Lord comes before. We know that we will die. Death comes for us all. But our hope is that Christ will raise us from the dead just like he was risen from the dead. He was the firstborn from the dead, meaning that he went to the grave and he gave the final death blow to death itself. Now death has been defeated. So just in case someone's saying, well, Christ is preeminent in all of creation, but man, death is pretty powerful. Death is pretty high. Death is pretty significant. Christ says, no, no, no. I've defeated even death. 
I'm the firstborn from the dead. Death can't even hold me. And for those of us who are believers in him, death cannot hold us either. We have no fear of death. How can Paul keep preaching Christ and to the point where he was killed? How can people die as martyrs? Why would we be so crazy as to do something like that? It's because we have hope in the resurrection. We have hope because of what Christ has done for us. Because he is the firstborn from the dead. And then it says that he might be preeminent. So the resurrection shows us that Christ truly is preeminent. Just in case you were starting to doubt, just in case you weren't sure, look to the resurrection that Christ has defeated even death itself and you'll see there is nobody like our God. There is no one like Christ. There is no one as magnificent and as glorious as Christ who, who can even defeat death. How wonderful is it for us to know and to trust Him. Death can't hold him. He is preeminent. He is victorious. Philippians says that because he was willing to go to the cross and die for us and rise again, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is preeminent. Let's look at the next verse, verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, all the things we've just talked about, they sound good. They're good ideas. But none of them make any sense if it's not for verse 19. And verse 19 tells us that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. That shows us that Christ is fully God. The fullness of God, the fullness of deity dwells in Him. See, Christ, the Lord dwells in us, His Spirit dwells in us, but not the fullness of God in this sense, like it's saying here. Christ is fully God. God wrapped Himself with flesh, became a man, and walked upon the earth. Chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, For in Him, referring to Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we see it's the fullness of deity. It is all of the godness, if you will, putting on flesh, becoming a man, becoming a human. 100% God, 100% man. Fully God, fully man. These aren't just some orthodox beliefs that Oh, that's for the people in their ivory towers, and that's for the pastors, and that's for the seminaries. No, no, no. These are truths that affect every single one of us as believers. And your faith, if it's not grounded firmly on these foundational truths, will falter during difficult times. It will falter if you don't have a firm foundation that Christ truly is God. He truly is who he says he is. See, even historians that are atheists, that are against God, they cannot deny that a person existed who is named Jesus. They cannot deny that this person was killed. And they cannot deny that somehow his body went missing. Okay? It, there's just too much evidence. So even people who... who 
desire strongly to, to go against Christianity. They cannot deny those truths. So what do they do? They have to reinterpret it. Well, you know, those things happened, but he was just a good man. He, he was just a good prophet. And, well, you know, they thought he died, but really, you know, he was given this medicine that made his heartbeat go real low, so doctors thought he was dead. And then when they put him in the tomb, he, he was not really dead, so he woke up, and then he left and left town, so that way people think he rose from the dead. Or, you know, there's thousands of theories trying to explain what actually happened, but a lot of them have to do with Christ not being God. Because the moment you decide that Christ is God, then you have to believe everything he says. And then you realize that there is no other way to God except through Christ. Because Christ kept teaching that. So the first thing that's going to be attacked is the deity of Christ. Here's the thing. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis says, you know, don't give me this nonsense about Christ just being a, a good teacher. Because that's not an option. Here's your choices for looking at Christ. Either A, he was who he says he is. He was God coming to die for our sins. B, he's a liar. Somebody, just a normal human being who claimed to be God but was a liar. Or C, he was just a human who claimed to be God but he was a lunatic. He was crazy. Right? Because if anybody claims to be God and they're not God, they're not a good teacher. Okay? They're, they're either who they say they are, they're a liar, or they're a lunatic. There's no other options. Good teachers who are just human don't say, I'm God. Right? I mean, we hear about people all the time as having these little cults and they're claiming that they're God. We don't think, oh, they're a good teacher, yeah. They're just a little misinformed claiming to be God as if that's a minor detail. No, C.S. Lewis says they're either, a, they're either who they say they are, they're a liar, or they're a lunatic on the same level as a person who thinks he's a poached egg. Right? I mean, you can't claim to be God if you're not God. Christ made those claims. He says, I and the Father are one. He made claims that even the Jewish leaders who knew the Old Testament probably better than most of us, they said, you're claiming to be God. You deserve to die. He made those claims. So since Christ is God, and since we as believers hold to that foundational truth, we can look at Christ and we can see how, what God is like. We can see who God is. We can see His character. You want to see how God responds to sinners? Look to Christ. You want to see how God responds to an adulterous woman caught in the very act? Look to Christ. You want to see how God responds when a lying, stealing tax collector beats his chest and says, Forgive me, Lord, I have sinned. Look to Christ. In Christ, you can see God's anger at injustice. You can see God's love towards repentant sinners. And you can see how God hates hypocrisy and religious emptiness. How do we know this about God? By looking at Christ, by reading His Word and studying what He has taught us. That's the only way we can know about God. God didn't have to tell us about Himself. God wasn't obliged to reveal Himself to us. He could have left us running around lost, but He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. He's given us his truths.
Let's keep reading. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God created all things. And he said, it is good. He created the world. He created all that we see. And he said, this is good. But two chapters in a Genesis, three chapters in a Genesis, what happens? We messed it up. We tainted it. Tainted it. We sinned. We brought sin into the world. And it brought a curse on mankind. We are cursed. And even on all of creation. So now it's by the, thorn, the sweat of the brow and by the thorns of the land that man looks for food. So now all of creation, Romans 8 tells us, is groaning and longing for that day when things will be restored. Creation itself has been marred. Creation itself has been cursed. Why do you think there's earthquakes? Why do you think there's hurricanes? Why do we keep hearing about F5 tornadoes just causing so much destruction? It's because this world is cursed by sin. It's, it's fighting, it's, it's being cursed, and one day Christ will restore it. One day Christ, through his death and resurrection, will make all things new. And there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. There will be no more earthquakes, no more hurricanes, no more destruction because he'll make all things new. And we long for that day. So next time somebody asks you, oh, you're a Christian, you believe in God? Why are all these things happening? Let them know it wasn't supposed to be this way. This is the result of sin. This is the result of the curse. And then share with them the good news that Christ came to make all things new. And share the gospel that though we were headed for destruction, and though Christ could destroy everything and be perfectly just, he has provided a way of salvation. In verses 21 through 23, Paul is going to really focus in on these believers. So he's given us these truths He's given us these ideas, and he's really going to zoom in and apply it to their life. Look in verse 21. He says, and you, okay, those words are emphatic. They're at the beginning of the sentence to show, hey, I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to just ideas. I'm not talking about things that are just above our heads. I'm talking to you specifically, you right there. Don't think about your neighbor. Don't think about the person next to you. I'm talking to you. It says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's talking to us. He says, you were alienated from God. Alienated, estranged, separated from God. We were created for perfect fellowship with a holy and loving God. But we have been alienated, separated because of our sin. Every single one of us. We're alienated from God, separated from Him. Not only were we alienated, it says we were hostile in mind. That word hostile could also be translated hated. We hated God in our mind. It could also be translated enemies. We were enemies of God. Now I know some people who are unbelievers, they're not these people who go out and do all these bad things. They may, not, they may seem like a normal you know, everyday good citizen, they, they try to pay their taxes, they try to do the right thing. 
But listen, until we come to know Christ, until we are followers of him, until we put our faith and our trust in him, we are alienated from him and we are hostile in mind to God and the things of God. We, were, we are enemies of him until we've been redeemed. Or if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, you are still alienated from God. You are still hostile in mind towards him. And what does this lead to? Doing evil deeds, it says in verse 21. If we're against God, if we're against the things of God, what are we going to follow? We're going to follow our desires. We're going to follow our flesh. We're going to do what we want to do. And our heart is evil. So it's going to lead to evil things. Again, you may think, oh, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. I, I wouldn't do this, this, and this. And we compare ourselves to other people and in light of them, we seem like we're okay. But compared to a holy, loving God, compared to a preeminent ruler and savior of all Christ, we are far from perfect. Doesn't this kind of strike you as funny? We just talked about how great Christ is, how he is the head of the body, how he is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. We see all these awesome attributes of who Christ is and then the first thing he says about us oh you're alienated and you're hostile mind you're evil and that make you feel dirty oh man Christ is so great I love just thinking on that but as soon as I start looking in the mirror myself oh it makes me cringe inside because I know I'm a sinful person I know those things that I thought when that person said or did this I know that look I gave that person when they said this about me I know what I thought when that person cut me off in traffic. I know my sinful heart. So to think about a beautiful and loving Christ, it doesn't make me feel good because I see how wicked I am. But there's hope. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. After showing us the wonderful and magnificent Christ, he then shows us the grim reality of who we are, and we are, we are left to despair, and we're, we're hopeless. But he says, but wait, you were alienated from God, but now he has reconciled you. He has brought you back together. He has provided a way that though you were separated from him for all of eternity, by putting your faith and trust in him, you can be reconciled to God. We are no longer alienated if we trust in Christ. Don't you just love stories where there's been some kind of alienation, there's been some kind of separation and then there's a reuniting at the end. A movie, a book you've read. My dad, you know, he, he knew his whole life. He had heard thoughts and rumors and little things here and there that maybe he had brothers and sisters, but he never knew the truth until late 40s. Found out he had nine brothers and sisters, and they were all reunited. And my dad's a pretty, he's kind of a country guy, you know, real strong, tough kind of guy. But listen, when they got together, they were like giddy little girls. I mean, they were just laughing and giggling, and, and I've never seen my dad act so giddy in my life. Why? Because when, when there's been an estrangement, when there's been an alienation, we love to see restoration. 
We love the movies when there's restoration. I, I, every now and then I see somebody post on Facebook where a, a father who's been in the army comes back and it shows a picture of him hugging his little girl or hugging his wife or hugging his son. And it almost brings tears to my eyes every time. Why? Because they've been separated, but now they're brought back together. And that just, there's something in us that we love that. And that, those little stories are pointing us to the greater reality that we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from God because of our sinful desires and our sinful actions, but He has reconciled us back to Himself. What greater news could I give you this morning? What greater thing can I tell you? Many of you here, you're, you're struggling in sin. Some of you are here this morning and you never want to have anything to do with church. You don't want to trust in Christ because you say, Preacher, you say all that, but you don't know my past. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the skeletons that are in my closet. And that shame and that guilt is keeping you from trusting in the greatest preeminent ruler and savior of the universe. It's keeping you from having true life and true vitality. It's keeping you from knowing Christ, the greatest treasure that you could ever know because you're buried in your shame and your guilt. But Christ came to reconcile even the wicked deeds that nobody else knows about. Even those dusty old skeletons in your closet. And I assure you, you try to keep them in there They will come out and they will cause destruction. You can only keep alive for so long. You can only keep things hidden for so long. But why? Why would you want to when Christ has died to free us from all of that? Let it go. Trust in Christ. Cling to him. Say, Christ, I know that you came to set me free from this. I no longer want to bear this burden when you've already bore it for me on the cross. Let it go. Trust in Him. Why? Because He's reconciled you. How? In His body of flesh, by His death. Basically, Christ came to earth. We we already saw that He was God who put on flesh. He walked upon this earth, and He lived a perfect life, meaning He never thought those thoughts that we think. He never said those things that we say. He never rebelled against God in any way. He lived a perfect life, something that you you and I can never do. And then He goes to the cross, and all of your sins are placed on Him. Those skeletons in your closet, they've been placed on Him. And he took the punishment for us. So you don't have to bear it. He absorbed the wrath of God so you and I will never have to feel it if we put our faith and trust in Christ. He has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Why? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. After Paul just tells us we're enemies of God, hostile in mind, alienated from Him. He says, because of the work of Christ, you can be holy. You can be blameless. You can be above reproach. Those skeletons can be wiped away because of the work of Christ. Isn't that great news this morning? 
If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ, cling to him. He has died on behalf of your sins so that you can have life. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, but you just, you've been stuck in a rut, right? That always happens. We get stuck in a rut. We get going through the daily motions of life. And even though we go to church and we, we hear about Christ, really has no impact on our daily life because we're just going through the motions. I pray this morning you would see how preeminent Christ is, how he is the ruler and savior of his people. And that would stir up worship in your hearts. That you would remember this simple gospel message that Christ has saved us. And if nothing else in life goes well, if you never get that promotion you're looking for, if you can never afford that car you want, if you never get that house you like, the one thing you have is that you were dead in your sins, headed for hell, but Christ has saved you. And that's all we need for worship. That's all we need to remember. And everything else is secondary. I can get through my horrible job if I remember that. I can get through living poor and eating ramen noodles if I can just remember that. I can suffer any persecution for being a believer if I can just remember that truth. I pray you would worship in your heart this morning this great and glorious truth of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Look at verse 23 with me. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This all depends on not your works. You can never be good enough to get to heaven. You can never be good enough to restore the broken relationship with God. It's all by faith, by trusting in Him, trusting that He died on the cross for your sins. And Paul says if you continue in that faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting aside, not trusting when these other truths try to come in and compete for your affections, dismiss them completely and hold fast to the faith of Christ and His glorious gospel. You cling to that truth. In spite of everything else you might hear, hold fast to the faith. We believe in the perseverance of the saints, meaning that if somebody truly accepts Christ, they are His forever. But sometimes Scripture gives us warnings and it gives us things to examine our heart. And He's saying here, are you holding fast to the faith? Are you continuing in the faith? If you're not, if you, you maybe you're going through a time of doubt, it may or, I'm, not, I'm not saying you, you're not saved, but maybe you're not. Because listen, everybody who says a prayer is not necessarily saved. The proof of pudding is in the eating. Are you walking and do you continue in that faith? We all battle sins. Sometimes we backslide. Sometimes we doubt. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about do you truly believe Christ died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that Christ is the preeminent ruler and savior of his people? I don't know where you may be this morning, but for all of us in here, that should stir up worship. Here in a minute, I'm going to pray, and they're going to lead us in worship, and I pray that you would just worship your God, knowing how great he is, how preeminent He is, how He is a great ruler. He's a great Savior for us. 
And now it's stir of worship in your hearts. Maybe you've forgotten the simple truth of the gospel. Maybe you've been distracted by all these other things that you would just reflect on that truth and just worship him with all your heart this morning. If you've been caught in a rut, pray that you would just worship Christ and pray for him to deliver you from that and give, give you, again, the joy of your salvation. And if you're here and you've never accepted that, I pray for the first time you would cry out to God. I pray for the first time you would rid yourself of those sins and those skeletons in your closet and cling to Christ as your Savior. He is a preeminent Savior. He is glorious. There are no others like Him. You can try every other thing to get to God. You can try every other religion, but none of them will get you there. Only Christ. He is preeminent. There is none like Him. Cling to Him this morning. Cling to Him this morning. Maybe you need to grab somebody who's here who you know is a strong believer and you want to talk to them, you want to pray with them. Maybe you want to come up to the front and pray with somebody. Let's, do, let, let's apply the truth of God's Word this morning. Let's apply it to our heart. Let's worship God and trust in Him this morning. Join with me in prayer.